connecting you to the future of the internet. internet. It's Sunday Social with Vaughn Davis. to Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis rocking it out on a Sunday night, a drizzly Sunday night here in Tamaki, Makaro and all over the country. That was, of course, Deja Voodoo. Tongues firmly in cheek with their hit, hit song, Beers. I would give you one of my beers, but I've only got six words to live by. Hey, welcome to the show with you right through until eight o'clock with the internet app and social media goodness you have just been hanging out for. Show number 237 in a continuing series. I'd love you to be part of the show. You can text me. 163 of you texted me last week. That's quite a lot. Saskia's looking at me through the booth going, get out. In fact, she's probably saying that with the swear word, but uh, this is the radio. 163 of you texted me last week. I was touched. I was touched. Mind you, I was giving away a mobile phone. Uh, text me 3920, keyword live. That'll pop up in front of me here in the uh, studio in the heart of the news hub. I should take a photo. I should take a photo and send it to you guys. Uh, you can always tweet me at Vaughan Davis. I love the tweets. The, t- the two people who love tweets most in the whole wide world are me and Donald Trump, and there's only one worth following. Later on, Anna Connell, I understand she's already in the building somewhere, but uh, trying to negotiate security as we speak. Anna Connell with bad news for news readers. Sorry, Mike. Sorry, Sam, we've got some very bad news for you. We've got a foldable phone to... What? Wait, what? A foldable phone to talk about? That's quite something. And, and, will virtual John Kerwin really make all your worries go away? First, though... will have seen their kids playing Minecraft, a deceptively low-resolution game involving the building and sometimes destruction of online structures and communities. It's also been used in other creative ways, including a huge and very detailed recreation of Gallipoli close to home at the Auckland Museum. In a bit of a surprise move, the game was bought by Microsoft back in 2014 for $2.5 billion. They're not playing around, though. Deirdre Kornstrom, Microsoft General Manager of Minecraft Education, joins me by phone. Deirdre, welcome to the show. Thank you, Vaughn. How are you? I'm very well. And you're calling from Wellington, and uh, we were just discussing before you went to air, your arrival's been somewhat overshadowed by the Royal Tour Yes, it has. I'm, I'm happy to follow in their footsteps. Footsteps, though. Just, just ring, ring, ring up uh, businesses and, and say your name is Megan and see what you can book. Um, so, my <laughs> Minecraft to someone who hasn't seen it, and I've certainly seen it over the shoulder of my teenage sons quite a lot. Describe Minecraft to me in general for someone who's never seen it. 
So Minecraft is an open world game, and that means there's uh, you can explore anywhere in it. There's no objective, no story, and no characters in Minecraft. So it's a bit unique in the gaming world. Um, and what we say is the the player creates her own story or his own story when they're playing Minecraft. So it's essentially made of of, of placing and, and breaking blocks that represent different different items in the world, and you can really create anything with them. And hundreds and thousands and millions of kids do right they spend hours on the computer with their mates building uh you know building great structures and yeah you know, I've, I've seen i've seen more than a few tears when people return to the game and see that their mates have destroyed them so it's it's, it's a little bit of a microcosm of real life right it really is. In fact, we don't just see kids playing. We see um, all ages uh, playing Minecraft, getting together. Um, people often play together online and it creates this really amazing global community of players. Um, you mentioned the Gallipoli exhibit at the museum. Um, that's just one example. We've seen, you know, entire cities uh, created in Minecraft. Uh, we've seen fantasy worlds, multiplayer games. It's really quite expansive, um, the ways that people interact with it. And, and perhaps the most surprising thing about it for a you know, game that uh, came out in, what, 2011, 2012, is it's really low res. It's just these, these low resolution blocks, these squares. And to say that, you know, it was a Lego world would probably be kind. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. The developer, a uh, Swedish developer named Notch, is his, his gaming nickname, uh, Marcus Person. He he liked that sort of retro look to games, and that was the the style that he created the game in. Um, what's really interesting, actually, is we find that in not just in an education context, but for anyone getting started, having that very low res, blocky aspect of the game makes it very easy to get started. So I'm not an artist. If someone sat me down with a full set of oil paints and challenged me to create a self-portrait, I'd be pretty intimidated to get started and I would be thinking about how realistic I could make it. But when you ask someone to make a self-portrait or to recreate something in a Minecraft world, they're working with one meter cubes and there's quite a, a palette of different items, um, but that actually inspires creativity and it, it, it takes away some of that, that fear of a blank canvas or that um, fear of not getting something that looks amazing or realistic. And so we find in the classroom, both with educators getting started and with students, that it really helps, um, encourages iteration. There's something satisfying both about placing a block in Minecraft and also in destroying it to do it over again because you want to change how it looks. So if, if I were to make a chicken and you were to make a chicken, they'd both be, you know, white cubes with a beak and feet, and that would be that. My mind wouldn't be better or worse than yours. Sure thing, yeah. So you spent a lot of money on it. Well, not you, but um, Microsoft collectively, $2.5 billion it was reported. Why did Microsoft buy, you know, there's lots of popular games out there. Why did you buy Microsoft, uh, why did you buy Minecraft in the first place? Well, the... The, the education project that, that I started shortly after the acquisition four years ago was, was one of the areas that Microsoft really saw as an opportunity. Um, teachers very organically started using Minecraft in the classroom um, just w when it first came out about nine years ago. Um, there were a couple of teachers in particular who, who were um, gamers and started playing the game and they saw how it could be used in the classroom and how having this open world environment could be a great place to do simulations for historic events or 
uh, for students to act out pieces of literature or, or create things that they were learning in the classroom. And so that was one element where Microsoft has a long history of um, in education and, and saw that as an opportunity to bring something really kind of disruptive um, and, and really innovative into the classroom. And we've seen educators around the world um, really embracing it. Um, beyond that, it's 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 just it's a phenomenon as a game. Like you said, it's very um, it's very blocky. It's not you know a beautiful high res game that requires a lot of technology, um, but it's it's captured the imagination of millions of players around the world. Um, the way the Mojang team brought the game um, to the community and really involved in the, the community of players in every aspect of it, I think has been really powerful and it's what creates staying power for the game um, because the people who play it are very uh, involved in how how it's how the game has evolved and, and what the play experience is like. And I, I guess like a lot of really successful games, the vision that the creators had when they built it in the first place has been exceeded by what the, the players themselves have created, right? Absolutely, yeah, without question. I think Notch built a game that he thought would be fun to play um, and the magic really happened when it got out into the community and, and players started um, modding the game, so making modifications to slightly change the way the game could be played or to add and introduce new things into the game. There's also a really incredible community of YouTubers who they play the game and, and share that with their community and they've got millions of followers um, who who tune in to see what they're doing, how they're playing, to sort of experience their world. Um, I find sometimes when I talk to kids in classrooms I'm visiting, they'll talk about these Minecraft YouTubers as if they know them, and they'll talk about the experiences that they've watched on these YouTube videos as if they've actually um, experienced them. And so uh, that whole kind of connected ecosystem of, of players who really care a lot about this game, care about having a positive impact in the world with the game, um, has certainly exceeded, I think, anyone's expectations of what was possible. So speaking of expectations, I was reading some media from 2014 when Microsoft bought Minecraft, and, and a lot of the commentary then was that it was a gaming move. You know, you, you've, you've got your Xbox platform, and there's a long history of uh, Microsoft getting involved in games, right back to Minesweeper, actually. We were talking about Minesweeper on the show last week. But the education thing, when, when did the education focus really take off, and how was it first used in education, uh, you know, once Microsoft had picked it up? Sure. So it, it was. I, I participated in the um, the acquisition process, and and through that process, I I said to my boss, "Hey, this education stuff is amazing. I want to go work on this." And he said, "Okay." And so that that started with a trip to Stockholm um, about four years ago, just after the acquisition. Um, and I sat down with some of the leaders from the Mojang Studio, um, Lydia Winters, who is. Um, the chief brand officer today she was um i think her title at the time may have been director of fun um she was trained as a classroom teacher oh, she has a degree in time. elementary you you took someone whose whose title was director of fun and and now that now that it's owned by microsoft you made it the chief brand <laughs> officer see this is what's wrong with big companies <laughs> uh, i think lydia is, we should we should have lydia come on and talk to you because she is still incredibly fun um, yeah, I think uh, it, it speaks to how Minecraft has really um, spread throughout our our consciousness in many more ways than than we thought was possible even four years ago. But she, you know, what she said to me in that first conversation, I said, "Hey, I know you're interested in education. I'm here to help. What's your vision?" And Lydia said, 
we want to use Minecraft to change the world. So give me... And I will admit for... Give me an example. Go ahead. I'll, I'll, give me an example of how Minecraft is being used in education, because I get how it's used in gaming, but talk me through how what it's being used to teach and how it is being used. Sure. At, at a very basic level, um, for students who don't have access to technology at home, Minecraft is a great way that early primary educators have found to introduce students to using a mouse and a keyboard to navigating a 3D space or a 3D environment, and also for introducing a concept called digital citizenship. And so when we're young and we're on the playground, we learn about consequences. If I push my friend in the playground, somebody might get hurt, I might get in trouble, and so we learn about those consequences. Those same um, lessons in a virtual world or an online world aren't always as obvious, and so Minecraft pr provides a great environment for teaching about this idea of digital citizenship. So it's at, at a very basic level, teachers are found it's really helpful for that. Beyond that, it's often used to, um, in a, for a specific subject, it can be great at introducing a new concept. So if we're learning about fractions in the classroom, we can use Minecraft blocks to demonstrate or model fractions. Um, for students who are more visual learners or more hands-on learners, having that sort of hands-on experience in a virtual world in Minecraft can really help with some of those complex math or science concepts. So one, um, so, one, students, right. so once upon a time, yeah. and I don't this this might be a cultural difference between New Zealand and the States, I'm not sure. Once upon a time to learn fractions, we had these colorful wooden blocks called Cuisinaire rods. And now we're doing this in the virtual space with you know, with blocks within Minecraft. Did you have Cuisinaire rods in the United States? Um, I don't think so. We've blank definitely block, had co colorful block. blocks. And... All, all, <laughs> yeah. all, all, all New Zealand listeners will, will know what I'm talking... Well, all New Zealand listeners over a certain age will know what I'm talking about. I'm talking to Deirdre Kornstrom from Microsoft. She's the General Manager of Minecraft Education. Back soon. Sunday Social. And welcome back to Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis, and we're talking about Minecraft. That's right, that blocky universe your teenage and preteen kids probably have spent way too much time on. Well, the good news or the bad news is it's coming to a classroom near you. Thank you to Microsoft. And I've got the general manager of Minecraft Education, Deirdre Quantrum, on the phone. How are you, Deirdre? Great, thanks, Vaughan. We spoke before the break about uh, using Minecraft and the, the sort of the low-res virtual world that it provides to teach simple things like digital citizenship. Well, that's not simple, but, you know, fundamental things like digital citizenship, um, fraction theory using colourful blocks and bits and pieces like that. But it actually goes deeper than that. So we've got schools using it to teach chemistry, literature, other sciences. Tell me how that actually works, because I, I can't get my head around that. <laughs> so do you remember your high school chemistry class and the Bohr model? I remember the smell. I remember the smell of the chemistry <laughs> lab. Neil, Neil's Bohr, wasn't he? He's, he's a sweet, it's all Swedish. It all comes back to the Swedes. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I don't know how that, how that happened. So we've taken that, that model with the, the circle in the middle that represents the nucleus of the, and the protons and neutrons are in there and the electron shells. We've created that model in Minecraft. So players can actually go in and create all the elements in the periodic table, and then they can combine those. So you can combine uh, two hydrogen and oxygen and make water in Minecraft, um, and then combine those into fun elements. One of the, the projects that we love to see is students making latex, so looking up the chemical formula for latex, creating the elements, combining those, and then turning that into a helium balloon that becomes part of their Minecraft gameplay. 
Um, so we've taken the the science and we've worked with with scientists with um, university level academics and researchers um, to bring real science into Minecraft. But we've also done it in kind of a fun, quirky, unexpected way that really engages students. Um, and our goal with that is to get the students so that they're inspired to learn, so that they're curious about, well, what happens if I add another electron? What happens if I add another neutron? Um, and they're, they're going much deeper in the learning than they maybe normally would um, in the chemistry world. One of the areas that I'm really excited about is computational thinking and coding. And so again, we've been able to take um, a subject that most of our teachers aren't trained on today, but that's so critical um, in preparing students for jobs of the future um, and connect that in a really fun way in Minecraft. So you talked about something called the hour of code, which I think I've heard of outside of uh, Minecraft before, but tell me how it works in this context. <coughs> So Hour of Code is an annual campaign to encourage um, teachers to do just one hour of code and to get started with coding. It helps reduce some of the, the anxiety with a subject that can be a little bit scary for people who aren't as immersed in technology. So my team has created um, three previous Hour of Code tutorials. These are available on code.org slash Minecraft for anyone. It's totally free. You can play on any device. And we have a fourth one coming out called the Voyage Aquatic. And so in the Voyage Aquatic, you're writing code to explore an underwater Minecraft world. Um, and so in that, again, we, we have a series of quests or challenges that players go through across 12 levels. Um, and in doing that, they're learning about um, stacking blocks of code, about creating loops um, while due. Um, so we, we start to introduce these, these basic fundamental concepts for coding in a really fun way. And what aged children are doing this? So for our code, um, that starts as young as probably seven, six, seven years old. There, there's some instructions that they need to read. So often we refer to early readers. Mm -hmm. But this goes up through anyone, any age. My, my father-in-law very proudly did Hour of Code the first year we had a Minecraft Hour of Code and printed the certificate and showed it to me when, when I was at their house. So um, encourage anyone to try even to, you know, to, to play with your kids or grandkids um, and print your certificates. And now teaching coding, you know, Microsoft coming up with a, a way to teach coding inside uh, Minecraft seems like an obvious thing. But the one that jumped out for me was literature. How do you teach English literature in uh, a, a low-res 3D world populated by pigs and chickens? <laughs> and creepers too, don't forget creepers, about the creepers. Don't forget the creepers. Yeah, so we have just some really incredible educators around the world who, who look at Minecraft and it just comes to life for them. Um, there's a couple educators, one based in the UK and another in the US who have worked together in something called cross pond collaborations. Um, and they've created a, a world in Verona that explores um, Shakespeare. Um, one of the ideas that I've seen that I think is really powerful and so, so easy to do is to ask students to create the home for a main character in a story. So this could be in any any piece of literature, um, but ask the students to, okay, go build a house for that character in Minecraft. And in doing that, they're thinking about what kind of home would that character have? Um, where would it be set? Would it be close to water? Would it be in the woods? What kind of material would it ha have? How large would it be? So they're really thinking in a different way and much more deeply about a piece of literature than, than maybe they would with a typical um, set of discussion questions or an essay that they might write about it. 
So we're talking to Deirdre Quanstrom from Microsoft about the wildly popular kids game Minecraft and how it's being used in education. Deirdre, you're in New Zealand at the moment. Is this in New Zealand classrooms right now and how, how common is it? So it is available to all classrooms in New Zealand starting this year. Um, I'll be meeting um, with, at a school in Wellington and then later in the week in Auckland. Um, it's still very early in adoption, but we have some, some wonderfully engaged educators who are um, looking at creating uh, lessons that are connected to the New Zealand curriculum. Um, and so we expect it to um, continue, continue growing in the next school year. So that, that's interesting. You said um, you've got some wonderfully engaged educators. Um, there'll be a bunch that go, whoa, computer games, Minecraft, coding. I know nothing of this. I graduated from Teachers College 20 years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm not prepared and I'm not keen to, to do this stuff. How do you deal with that? <laughs> It's been, you bring up really, really great uh, questions. What I've been so surprised by is it tends to be the later in career educators who are most excited about this because when they see students using it, they see how engaged they are in the content and they see how um, how wonderfully they can connect it into the curriculum. So, so even if the educator is not a gamer, is not um, you know currently playing games or hadn't thought about using Minecraft, when they see what's possible, when they see a student who can't wait to come into class or who's asking if they can take work home with them, they know they have something that works. Um, and the, the educator really can play the role of, of a guide. The students are coming in with the expertise in the gaming world um, and in the computer. And so um, having the, student, the, the teacher act as a, a guide with the students in something like asking them to build a, a model of their school. The teacher doesn't need to be in the game. They don't need to know the mechanics of it. Mm -hmm. Having the students present back to them, they can see that it's, um, it's getting across the, the subjects that they want. So if the teachers are keen, the students are keen, you need the hardware and you need the internet connectivity. So setting New Zealand aside, because it's early days here, how are you removing that barrier worldwide? You know, found schools are really um, quite quickly um, bringing hardware in, bringing internet connectivity in. In most developed countries around the world, there's some sort of government initiative to bring broadband connectivity to schools. Minecraft has pretty light light demands on um, on internet connectivity, so just having a device, having the software. Um, I think the the biggest um, challenge really is the the educator mindset and and connecting with those educators who are. Um, interested in bringing something new into the classroom and who are willing to um, take on something that does challenge the students to be more creative, um, think more about problem solving. It's not teacher at the front of the classroom lecturing to the student. It, it is a, a different dynamic with the teacher and the student. And so I think that's honestly the, the, the bigger challenge that we have. And I think that's a challenge beyond Minecraft, but really in bringing more technology education into the classroom. Another barrier for schools introducing anything new, of course, is cost. What are you charging schools for this? So the, the Minecraft license is five dollars, five US dollars per student per year for an annual subscription. Uh, here in New Zealand, um, as, as part of the Microsoft software package, it's available to all primary and secondary students across the country. So if, if you're already running your school on Microsoft software, it's all bundled in, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's free to all, um, all students. It's fully funded by the government.
And what's what's next? So we've done, uh, you know, we've, we've created Gallipoli in Minecraft. You're teaching coding. Uh, you've you've got uh, you know the Bohr model of, um, of of atomic theory. What's next for Minecraft as an education platform? So the 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 place where I see we have the greatest opportunity, and this is a combination of Microsoft's leadership in technology. Um, Minecraft is a very uh, accessible, engaging tool. And what I'm seeing from schools, the Ministry of Education, which is preparing our students with um, stronger computational thinking, coding, technology education. So we'll be investing a lot more. Hour of Code is, is one of the things we're doing. We're also adding um, a coding experience into the Minecraft game. So when students launch Minecraft Education Edition, they can connect directly um, to Scratch and to Make Code, which are block-based coding programs. Mm -hmm. So making it very, very easy to take those first steps with coding. Beyond that, I think um, AI is something that right now, you know, we, we worry about the threat to millions of jobs around the world uh, lost to automation. And I think we have an opportunity and really a responsibility to prepare our students with those kind of problem-solving creativity skills that will be so important in a world powered by AI. And uh, and hopefully a world uh, still featuring lots of uh, pigs, chickens and creepers. Deirdre Quanstrom from uh, Microsoft Minecraft Education. Thanks so much for joining me on Sunday Social. Thank you, Vaughn. And you can listen back to that whole entire interview at radiolive.co.nz under Shows and Sunday Social. That will be up there this evening, if not this evening, tomorrow morning. And, of course, as a podcast at iTunes. Just go have a bit of a uh, bit of a snuffle around for that and uh, follow your nose. After the break, Anna Connell is in the house with the apps, internet news and all that online goodness. Back soon. Welcome back to Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis with you right through until 8 o'clock. And a big warm welcome back to the chair. Anna Connell, how are you? I'm very well, Vaughan. How are you? Very well. How's your digital week been? Uh, it's been it's been okay. It, well, the midterms were a, they were a roller coaster, weren't they? On Twitter? oh, they were. There, there was lots mm. of content, lots of content, and um, I suppose the content that I enjoyed the most was the um, various video interpretations of the microphone struggle. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's actually deeply serious and pretty horrific because it very much looks like the White House have doctored that. Well, no, 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 no. They, 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 they released they released a video that someone else had doctored. Oh, um, right, Infowars. Info yeah. Did you did you ever do this? Is um this is digressing more than ninety degrees? No, that's as much as you can, you can digress, isn't it? Ninety degrees. That's about it. Um, <laughs> did did you ever do theatre sports or improv theatre? As a, I did. Yeah. Do you remember the game, uh, the warm up game, slow mo po fo? Uh, slow motion poison forearm. It was where no, it was where a, a group of um, improv actors would sort of get into a, a small space, and their left forearm would be considered to be poison, and you'd <laughs> sort of chase each other around the the small space and try and poison each other with the forearm, and and then you'd slow die. Right. Yes. And that's what those that's what that footage reminded me of. Yeah, it's pretty. I mean, there's been some amazing edits of it, where they sort of end up. Scrapping like the musical, I don't the, want to say like girls, but the, you know. the musical mashups. Um, uh, yeah, well, if all that left you a feeling more than just a little bit depressed, I've got some good news for you, Anna, because uh, I'm going to email you. I'm going to email you a virtual John Kerwin, and you're going to be happy for the rest of your days. <laughs> happy, happy, happy. <laughs> yeah, look, the, I mean, this is JK stands for just kidding. Yeah, I mean, look, 
John Kerwin is fantastic. He's done a lot of great work, I think, around awareness um, for depression and, and mental health issues. I think he's it's great that he's a man and he's talking about it. That's really important. But his latest is uh, working within companies to provide them with a kind of virtual or AI avatar version of John Kerwin that employees can talk to about their... Workplace. You can see yeah. so, so life this is, coming out of my voice. This, this, is, this is an announcement from the man himself that he's partnered with a company called FaceMe who specialise in creepy visual avatars for big companies. Yes. Uh, that's going to be an artificially intelligent John Kerwin face, a floating John Kerwin like face. a big giant head. That will, that will sit on your computer screen and you can talk to him, yeah. tell him your problems and he will listen yeah. and provide advice. Yeah, you're not big on it? No, look, so two things. One, you and I have talked about Wobot before, which is the Stanford University chatbot, which I actually did sign up for and used for about a month just to kind of see what it was like. And and that's just a kind of back and forth check-in sort of thing. So there's that. So so to a degree, people have already, I suppose, solved the problem of how do you do... Regular check-ins, I guess, with people, because that's really what that's best for. Yeah, so so Wobot is a Stanford University-developed chatbot. It works on Facebook Messenger, which is something we all already it's have. It's ubiquitous, yep. It's ubiquitous. It, it works on text. It doesn't pretend to be human, and, in fact, it goes to great lengths to say, mm. hey, I'm just a robot, beep, beep, it says mm. sometimes in a cute little robot way. It's genderless, which yep. we, we might get onto. Uh, and, and this is the kicker, it's been proven to reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. So this is a problem that has already been solved. Well, exactly. And well, also... You know, solved to it. You know, there is, there is a solution. There's a lot in this space already because you can already um, engage a counsellor or a doctor via the internet as well. Um, so I don't know. And then my other thing is I don't... I don't feel like this necessarily addresses a lot of the reason why people might be feeling depressed or anxious in a workplace. Well, yeah, that's that's the kicker. This isn't this is not just generic. This is for people who work at three particular big companies, right? Yeah. So he, well, he's sort of talking to these people and kind of trialing uh, it with the warehouse group, Buffett and Thompson and Perpetual Guardian. Now, interestingly enough, Perpetual Guardian have done what I think is probably the greatest thing that you could have done for your employees' mental health, which is reduced to a four-day work week. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. That was awesome. Do more stuff like that. I mean, I don't I don't want to knock this JK thing before it's kind of in action, but I guess what I observe within workplaces is people who've got way too much to do, not enough time to do it, uh, you know, sort of constant change around them. And I don't know that... I, I mean, I feel like this is kind of in the same category as, like, workplace wellness programs, which is a little bit, like box ticking for the organisation and less about actually doing the things that would improve the mental health of their staff. Absolutely agree. Um, One other thing that people um, advocate, in fact, uh, the the workplace thing made me think, I'm thinking of cutting down to a six and a half day work day. uh, You and I both work for ourselves, so we know what that's like. I mean, I was working today, so, you know, I'm not not one to, I guess, preach about it. But, you know, as a freelancer, I can kind of choose my own hours and I can be an adult and make decisions about when I work and when I don't, and that's the thing that sometimes... And when you get paid and when you don't? Yeah, that's sometimes the thing that you can't do when you work in an organisation. I just think there are other things that you could be doing. Yeah, for the money, for the money, because this will not be cheap. 
these things are not no. cheap. They cost six figures no. to, to make one of these, you know, virtual people. And what are you going to do? Sit in your pod and talk to John Koo and one and of your go, colleagues? Oh, look, Anna's, Anna's, Anna's looking at Oh, Anna's depressed. Open secret. Um, <laughs> one way that some people advocate to improve your well-being and mental health, and I don't know if I'm a fan of this, is unplug, go outside, uh, don't connect to the internet. But uh, you had a story which uh, at first I thought was about that, but it turns out is about the fact that the number of people connecting to mm. the internet worldwide is slowing. Yes. Slowing, so um, not quite as ubiquitous as we would all have expected. No, so there is a report that is due to be published, which... Um, oh, it's not even published. It's not and, even published and, and you, yet. And but you hear about it here on and Radio I, Live. you hearing it here on Radio Live first, well, not really first, The Guardian had it first, but um, it's an analysis of basically data which comes from the web Foundation, which is the organisation that um, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the man who invented the internet... I thought uh, Al Gore invented the internet. Oh, I did, well, who did invent the internet? Let's get that question out. I'm pretty sure it was Tim Berners-Lee. I'm pretty sure it was. Al Gore mm. invented the algorithm. Something, oh, that is a shocking joke. Do you like that? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it shows that growth in global internet access has dropped from 19%, so 19% year-on-year growth in 2007 to less than 6% last year. And where the growth has really slowed is in countries uh, like, well, not countries, continents like Africa. Um, and in developing nations, basically. So, essentially, the, the digital divide, which is this idea that there are people who have access the to the... The haves and the have-nots. The haves and the have-nots. Have um, that the gap is widening. But this, 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 this just doesn't mean that, you know, people in Zimbabwe can't play Minecraft. This means people in Zimbabwe will not get the sort of education that yeah. the rest of us would like to get. It will mean that they don't get the social services. It'll mean that they don't get the health care increasingly. Well, that, exactly. You know, if we're going, oh, e-health, it's going to be great. The, the thing about the digital divide that always gets me is the unintended consequences. And, and a, a story that um, I just shook my head when I f first read it. I couldn't believe it. The incarceration rate in Northland. Have mm. we spoken about this? Mm, no, I don't think we have. The incarceration rate. So this is, this is the rate at which people are sent to prison rather than given home detention mm. at that rate. In Northland, it's the highest of anywhere in New Zealand. Reason being? Yeah, do you need to have internet you need to, to have, get for, home detention? For, 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 you need to have good internet to have home detention to have your little bracelet monitored. Oh, this is precisely an argument I have had with someone who's very close to me about home detention and the fact that it is actually the domain of people who have a little bit more privilege than others. There you go. So mm -hmm. so in, in the far-flung uh, province of Northland with, you know, patchy internet coverage in the back blocks, mm. uh, people tend to get sent to jail more than uh, more than elsewhere in New yeah, Zealand. Yeah, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? It, it is yeah. It is absolutely shocking. I, I um, Yes, it is. Now, the, the other thing that's going to happen here, of course, is Facebook and Amazon and Apple are going to look at Africa and Asia and India and go, OK, these are our growth markets mm. and the internet is not growing like it should and they're going to come in and provide it. Yeah, of course they are. Of course they are, but, you know, there's obvious... You've got to have a device, though, don't you? 
You're going to have to have a device and it's going to have to have Facebook on it. And one of the um, interesting things that they talked about in this piece from The Guardian is in Africa how lots of people do in fact have phones, which I think may have been provided by Facebook possibly, and they all use Facebook, but they don't use the rest of the internet. Yeah, that's but that, that's um, the argument around net neutrality, right? Mm, so Facebook mm. is providing internet in some parts of the world, but only free connections in order to get Facebook. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Which, you know, you can argue if, if they're providing it, why would they let you access LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever? Is no, it's... but that's like just proprietary bollocks, to be honest. I mean, to do some good in the world. Proprietary bollocks and good in the world. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll have a little bit of uh, column A and a little bit of column B in the next part of the show. Back soon. Sunday Social, an hour dedicated to social media with Vaughan Davis. Hello, everyone. I'm an English artificial intelligence anchor. This is my very first day in Xinhua's agency. My voice and appearance are modeled on Zhang Zhao, a real anchor with Xinhua. The development of the media industry calls for continuous innovation and deep integration with the international advanced technologies. Hello, I am Vaughn Davis. I am an artificially intelligent radio host. I am co-hosting the show with Anna G. Connell. Welcome back, Anna. <laughs> Hello, Vaughn. So, what, <laughs> what, what in God's name? And was it proprietary BS, or was it for the good of the the good of humanity? Uh, what in God's name were we just listening to? Well, so you were listening to the world's first artificial intelligence newsreader. So. Uh, in Jing, Jinhua, I'm going to get that Jinhua. wrong. Jinhua. Jinhua. So, um, Jinhua uh, and a Beijing-based search engine operator uh, launched a AI newsreader. And you can see a video online, if you just do a Google for AI newsreader, and you can see he looks pretty lifelike. So he's a man, which is good, right? Because... You know, man, Ron Burgundy, <laughs> and he's modelled on another um, very famous uh, newsreader in China, uh, and he he reads the news and he's designed to learn and continuously just read the news twenty four seven because he never needs a break and get better and better at it. Yeah. So th this is interesting. I am a huge fan of journalists. Never never put the AI in place of the journalists, but. Um, as a way to get content across, yeah. going from a text story to a literal talking head there on a screen, it's, it's a pretty efficient and a very human, ironically, way of doing it. Yes. And this is only going to get better. This is going to become indistinguishable from the real thing. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to be here in five years' time. It'll just be AI, you and me having be... a chat. Well, no, I don't think it'll be for this sort of stuff. No, but, but, but for just, things where I... it's scripted, right? Yeah. And, and I guess the real advantage of... Um, of this little guy is that he never has to stop. And so the, the delivery of, I guess, news, you're still going to have humans and journalists in the background processing what's, you know, what this person is reading. But it means that it's constant 24-7 news. I mean, God, do we really want that? But And, and, and of course, the, the next development is you can have, you, you won't just be limited to this one guy. Mm. So I can, I, can have have the, I, can have, I can have the news delivered to me by Energy Connell. You could, yes. or, 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 or anyone, anyone I wanted to, to, to hear from. Uh, I, I just halfway through talking about this, it struck me, I, I, I remember this from somewhere, 
Um, you are probably too young. In the 1980s, there was a uh, TV show called Max Headroom. Yeah, no, Ma- I'm too young. Max Headroom was a virtual uh, robotic newsreader in the oh, late 1980s. Well, look, there you go. So this idea was had 30 years ago uh, and finally came to fruition in 2018. Of course, the big question is, can a robotic newsreader really win Dancing with the Stars? I think not. Well, so no. Hayes, so that's where they're, they're still safe. They, they, they are safe as yep. cherished, cherished personalities. Cherished media icons, yeah. Um, Armistice Day. Now, there, there is no segue from one to the other. Um, <laughs> Armistice Day. I looked at my watch this morning at 11.28. Uh, I was actually out at the hangar cleaning vomit from the back seat of my aeroplane. I, we, we, I wasn't going to talk about that on air. And I went, oh, <laughs> oh, nuts. I missed the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Naughty me. Um, you'd think you'd think I'd pick up on this because I'm ex-military. I was, yes. Oh, Eleven years I was in the military, or all, all the elevens. Um, did Armistice Day make a, a, a blip for you, Anna? You're, you're, you're very sort of community and you know New Zealand-minded. Oh, was it nice important of you. to you? Um, oh, I think of you that way. Oh, thank you. No, it, it sort of didn't. And, and look, to be honest, I'm sort of deep in um, wedding preparation hell, and so things I'm missing a lot. But I, it's been four years of the the World War One kind of remembrance stuff, yes. and so I I, I did missed this one a little but I saw the Gallipoli exhibition at Tapapa three or four months ago and was very, very moved by that. But I was just I mean I saw it on Twitter today and how do we think about that? And um yeah, but I mean I you know there's some lovely stuff that they've done online with it, isn't there? There is. I was yeah. having, there's the official website, www.100.govt.nz. Yeah. Everything you want to know about Armistice Day, well, including, and this is news you cannot use, uh, events you can go to today because they've already happened. But um, the opportunity to contribute a message that will be yeah, d- displayed. Yeah, I thought that was, that was really nice. The so park, you, a cenotaph in Wellington. You and can then, text it, can't you? Yeah, and it yeah. becomes part of the permanent. Uh, permanent record, which I think is, is rather sweet. But uh, I don't know, for me, as, as I say, you know, ex-military and, and the idea of serving overseas is not um, hypothetical to me. Mm. But, uh, I feel it's time to look forward, you know? Yeah, maybe, I that, mean, maybe that's the point of the 100th. It, ha- it has been, like, four years, you know, we have been recognising it for four years, and I'm not saying we should... There's, there's a limit on that time, but I do think that's possibly why Armistice Day kind of missed me by uh, this year, so... But, I mean, you know, it, it is important to, to remember and it's, you know, I guess, you know, <coughs> turn out at things like Anzac Day and stuff like that as well up. I think New Zealanders are very into kind of reflecting and looking back on that part of our history. Yep, but World War One. Mm. Hey, um, this is, this is um, well, what should we go with? Should we go with the Ola update or the uh, foldable phone? We'll go with the Ola update. Go with this is, that. This is the app part of the, uh, app part of the show. Last week on the show, because I try things so you don't have to, I took a ride on the new to New Zealand ride-sharing service, and ride-sharing just means Uber mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, a, it's a euphemism. Uh, Ola. Ola is big in India. It's huge. It is, it is the way to get around in India, unless you're lucky enough to ride an elephant. Yeah, yeah, or a rickshaw. Maybe you can ride an elephant. Ola, 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 <laughs> elephant. Ride an elephant. Um, so it, it works just like Uber. You get the app. You say, I want to go from here to here. Little map. You see a little car coming. Uh, I tried it last week. It wasn't that successful. I tried it again this week. Um, in the course of... It took, <sighs> took 20 minutes for a car to turn up to my house for a 10-minute ride. Three drivers cancelled in the course of that 20 minutes. Yeah. They, they accepted the ride, they were on their way, they cancelled, which just... Oh. 
And uh, the worst thing of all is Ola is advertising 50% off all your rides for the first 30 days. Pretty sure that's what the billboard said. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I finally got the fare, they had not. Mm. They had not. So should I give it another chance? Should I, should I report back next week? I don't know. Maybe you don't use it for a little while and see if it's much chop in a couple of months' time. But it's... if everyone doesn't use it, it just... I mean, even the driver said, no, I don't think much of this. I don't think much of this. Because he, like most Ola drivers, is also an Uber driver, an Uber quite dri possibly. <laughs> and a, a, Zoom a discount driver. cabs and Zoomy driver. <laughs> yeah. Which, so the idea is good. And someone was telling me in some other markets, you'll get into a car and the driver will literally have, you know, two or three or four phones sitting there so they can monitor all the ride-sharing offers that they're getting yes, yeah. and then choose the one which suits them best, yep. you know, suits where they want to go to or what the, f the commission rate is likely to be. So it's it's quite nice in that you want to support these drivers and, you know, help them feed their families, but it also has to work. You have to get where you're going. They well, you need to... reliability. And you that, do. And that is where Uber is pretty consistent. And Lime. And oh, Lime. Lime. I took one for a spin. Did you? Yeah. First time? Yeah. Tell me about it. Loved it. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, really good, really fun. I mean, I live in Devonport and it's a quite, I guess, cycle-friendly kind of village anywhere. Perfect for just kind of zapping around the village. Um, there's quite a few of them there. It was really easy to use and, yeah, we had great fun on it. Did, did you feel um, unsafe at any point? No, I never felt unsafe. I think probably at one point I was going a little bit too fast over a bump. How, what, how, what's the fastest you got to? Well, I only got up to, like, 25. Well, they only go up to 28. Yeah, well, like, well, That's very fast indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I can see how people <coughs> are calling for helmets. I think that makes a lot of sense. But Logistically, how's, how's I don't work? know how yeah, they do where, that. Where do you keep that helmet? They've well, said that they're going to. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think that's just a PR move rather than a safety move, mm. to, to be honest. I mean, um, Onzo, the bike-sharing service, they provide helmets, but, you know, they disappear very quickly. I don't yeah. know what people do with them. Use them to plant strawberries in, probably. Look, I, th I think it's like all forms of transport. Like, oftentimes it's got more to do with the person driving it than the actual form of transport itself. Yeah, I think uh, if we can all just be considerate, and uh, look after other road users and pedestrians. There's nothing wrong with the Lime Scooter. Exactly. Nothing you don't own the road, no you matter do not. what you're on. You do ever. not. Well, you do it. We all own the road. We all own a very small share of it. Hey, uh, Anna Connell, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Deirdre Quanstrom from Minecraft slash Microsoft. And Saskia in the booth, as always. Next up is the Weekend Variety Wireless. I'm Vaughan Davis. Nighty night.